Alex Bonetto laughs because he's at a four-person table. <laughs> All the three-person tables out there. All right. Well, hey, I want to tell you about something. 432 days ago, we had a party right here. It wasn't just any party. It was actually a wedding party we had out here. 432 days ago, there was a wedding right out here. And it was a special wedding, at least to me, because it was my wedding, right? It was Alexandra's wedding. So happy 432nd day anniversary. There you go, 432 days ago. I looked it up because it got me thinking about weddings. You are in a spot that has hosted a wedding. It actually has hosted a wedding or two or three or four, but this is a spot where a wedding was hosted. And I remember all the things we had to do before the wedding happens. It's nice to be a guest at a wedding because you kind of show up, everything's ready for you, all the food, all the decorations, all the chargers, which are those little gold things that are put under the plates. If you didn't know that, it's really cool. I learned that through my wedding. So you learn a lot of things when you get married. I guess you learn about decorations and all that stuff. But anyway, it was all this planning and it took a long time. It was a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort, but it was worth it because we got married and because Alexandra is amazing. So that's why it was worth it. But I want you to imagine, instead of being here, and at least it's 2020 now, but 2019 we did a wedding here. I want you to imagine it was a long time ago, really long ago, in the days of Jesus, what would a wedding have looked like? Well, the Bible actually describes a wedding and that's the text we're gonna look at, a wedding feast. So open up your Bibles. We're gonna read about a wedding, something that happened at a wedding when Jesus came in and he changed everything about this wedding. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter two. John chapter two. We just finished learning about how John the Baptist was out, he was about, he was preaching about Jesus and he pointed everybody to Jesus. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The person who's gonna really take care of our sin problem. He pointed to Jesus and then people started following him. If you remember what we talked about last week, we saw guys like Nathaniel, guys like Andrew, guys like Peter, guys like even John himself that started following Jesus after the events of last time. So now we have six followers or so. We think about six followers of Jesus. And I want you to check out this passage, John chapter two, verse one, it says, and on the third day, this is thinking three days after what we've been talking about, which it's funny, we've actually um, gone through a section of days. There's been on the next day and on the next day and on the next day, this is three days later. So this is day seven, if you're keeping track of John the apostle's gospel time. This is seven days into the wedding. It says um, seven day, or three days after that, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, which is a city that's about seven, eight miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. It says Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. It also says, and the mother of Jesus was there. So here's what we know about this wedding so far. We've got Jesus invited and his disciples and Mary. So the mother of Jesus, Mary is involved. So we don't know who got married here. Some people have said, maybe it was Nathaniel. Maybe it was a Bible character. The truth is we don't really know who got married here, but what we know is there are two people that apparently lived in this little mini town called Cana. And it says, and when the wine ran out, that was a bad thing. The mother of Jesus said to him, that said to Jesus, they have no wine. Could you imagine if we ran out of buntinis at our wedding? there would have been a revolt, okay? People would have been freaking out. I would have had people throwing tomatoes up at us if we ran out of, we had buntinis. You know what buntinis are? They're like the little cupcakes from uh, Nothing Bunt Cakes, right? No free ads, but there you go. Nothing Bunt Cakes, we, that's what we had for our wedding, right? Imagine you go to a wedding and they run out of cake. What would that feel like? I'd be like, oh, that's the only reason I came to this wedding was for the cake, right? And to celebrate the people, but also for the cake. That's essentially what happened here. 
at this wedding, they ran out of wine. And you might say, well, that's not a big deal because I've never had wine. Well, back then it was a big deal because this was the main thing that they drank. This is what they drank. And it wasn't the wine that you know of today that has a lot of alcohol. This seemed to be very diluted. It was like kombucha, basically, is what this was. They ran out of kombucha, right? Some of your moms would freak out if you went to a wedding and they ran out of kombucha. That's what happened here, okay? But this is a bigger deal for them than maybe it is for us because when we run out of something, we you know, move on with our lives. You're like, oh, well, I didn't get anything, but that's not a big deal. When you ran out of wine or something big at a, at a wedding, everybody knew about it. It was like this reputation that would stick with you, right? And even that's true today. Some things that happen at people's weddings, people always remember. The thing I'll always remember about Joseph's wedding is he cried the whole time, forever. I was just having a conversation with three people today about how Joseph cries. And the only reason we know that is because of his wedding. So things still stick to you at weddings, but what would really stick to them is if they ran out of wine, right? You might say, why is that a big deal? Well, it shows that they didn't plan and they didn't have enough, or maybe they were poor. It was a very bad thing for them, for this young couple who was getting married to have no wine. So Jesus is there and Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine. So we think that Mary actually was probably involved in this process. Maybe she helped cater the wedding. Maybe she was a wedding planner that helped this couple get married. It was a huge deal. A lot of shame if you ran out of wine. Mary says, hey, they have no wine. And Jesus says something to his mom that you are never allowed to say to your mom. You ready for this? Something that Jesus did that you're not allowed to do. Look at verse four. Look what verse four said. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Okay, I'm gonna pause right there, right? Um, if you ever told your mom, woman, what does this have to do? So like she says, hey, you need to pick up, pick up your, uh, your stuff from your room, clean your room. Woman, what does this have to do with me, right? You'd be in a lot of trouble, okay? You get whooped, as this is the front row says. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, not a good idea. So here's the thing. <laughs> this is a translation, right? It wasn't written in English, right? This was written in Greek. This was not such a bad thing to say. This is basically like saying ma'am or Mrs. Um, it's a respectful title. I right? know it doesn't sound very respectful when you read it, because right? in English, it doesn't mean that. Um, but as in the original language, this was just a nice way of saying uh, lady, Mrs., right? Which you might say, well, there's a word for mom in Greek, isn't there? And there is, right? But it seems like he's making some distance between himself and his mom here, because his mom is coming to him. And at this point, a lot of scholars say, we don't see anything about Joseph. Remember Joseph, the, the father of Jesus, right? Not the biological father, but Mary's husband. We don't see him. We think that maybe at this point, Joseph has died, which means Jesus has been taking care of Mary. So whenever Mary had a problem, she would turn to Jesus, who was her son, but acted in that role like the head of the household, and she turns to him, right? And here's what he says, what does this have to do with me, right? You might say, is Jesus being rude? Like, what's, what's Jesus' problem? Why is he mad? Well, we don't know what Mary's expecting to happen, right? I don't know if she was expecting a miracle, okay? But that's exactly what she got. So she asked Jesus for help. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And he says, my hour has not yet come. That idea of an hour coming is something that we're going to hear in the, the gospel of John all the way through the book until the hour comes, right? What's the hour that comes? It's when Jesus suffers and dies on the cross, right? That's the hour, right? An hour is kind of a, a figurative way of saying, it's not my day. It's not my time yet. It's not my time to do what I need to do, the miraculous things. But here's what Mary says. She turns around and says to the servants, he says, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. You might have looked at the stage and said, what are these trash cans doing here? Um, I actually asked for these trash cans because these trash cans um, hold around 20 or 30 gallons. So I want you to visualize this in your mind. 20 or 30 gallons. 
This is six trash cans, right? They're not very pretty. They're not uh, stone jars of purification. But I want you to imagine six of these. That's what Jesus is looking at. Essentially, they look a little different, but this is their size. He says, fill fill them up with water. So he talks to the servants. He says, fill them up with water. Fill them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. And just like that, he has the servants pour water into these, right? And then he says, okay, now servants come back here, grab something and take it out. And when they take it out, it's not water anymore. It's something completely different. There's molecules in it that are completely different. Just like uh, if you look at a, a soda and a water, you look at the ingredients, there's ingredients in the soda that aren't in the water, right? There's a lot of things in there that just aren't the same thing. In an instant, Jesus created all of this. Six huge trash cans, right? They weren't trash cans. They're actually the opposite of trash cans. They were a special religious item, but this much wine in an instant. Just by putting water in there, they pull some out and it's wine all of a sudden. That's crazy. Here's what happens next. They took it to the master of the feast. Verse nine, when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So the master of the feast has no idea where this wine came from. He has no idea who made it. He has no idea what vineyard it came from. He has no idea how long it's been aging, but all he says is, wow, whatever this is, is better, right? The master of the feast is not the bridegroom. Maybe he's somebody who's like the head caterer, right? So sometimes we cater food here at church and someone will come over and deliver the food, right? That seems to be the master of of the feast. And he says, this is better than anything that I've ever tasted before. This is better than anything that was served before. This is so weird. He actually goes to the groom and says, I didn't know you were gonna serve the good stuff later. We usually, we serve the good stuff first. He doesn't know how it got there. But verse 11 describes the people who do. Verse 11 says, and this, the first of the signs, first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It says this is a sign, right? Another word for sign in the Bible is miracle, okay? He did a miracle. This was unnatural. This was supernatural, right? If you were gonna make wine or any drink like wine, which is all it is, is uh, fermented juice, right? It's a lot like kombucha, right? It sits there and it ferments and it takes time. It takes time. It takes grapes. It takes a lot of things. And Jesus didn't use any of that. He just willed it and boom, it was wine out of nowhere. Did something amazing. So he did this and the disciples believed in him. Everybody who knew what happened, at least, they believed in him. Verse 12 says, and he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days, which would have been kind of an awkward conversation um, with his brothers and his mom, especially his brothers, because his brothers didn't even believe in him. They didn't trust in him, but they got all this, this wine from this wedding and they didn't even know where it came from, okay? What does this have to do with anything we've been talking about in the gospel of John? It seems kind of weird that you just put some random miracle in the middle of what we've been talking about, right? We've been talking about how we need to be introduced to Jesus. We need, we've been talking about how we need to follow Jesus. Well, what this sign is, and John says it, he says this sign was so important because the disciples believed in him. Jesus did something amazing to prove who he was, to prove everything that John had already said about him and everything that we've already studied in the gospel that he is. He finds out and they say, wow, we believe. He did something amazing. This was a merciful sign. This was gracious. He did something super kind to these people who would essentially run out of cake at the wedding. I think what it should teach us about Jesus, especially, is that Jesus, he's the creator. He can make anything. 
he can do anything. He can make anything from anything. He can make anything. He can make something as so big as the whole universe just by wishing it into existence, just by wanting it in his brain and boom, it exists. That's how Jesus creates. Also, we see how loving he is. I mean, think about it. He did something really kind for this couple. They were gonna be you know, the butt of every joke for years to come. He, they were gonna be people that everybody made fun of for years and years and years, but instead, they're the people that are honored because Jesus went to their wedding. We need to see that Jesus is the loving creator. And he also is the provider for all the people. The first big idea, I wanna look at verse 11 again. Check out verse 11. It says, this is the first of his signs. We kind of skipped over this, but I want you to realize what a sign does. If I held up a sign, right, a sign is useless. Have you ever seen those memes of like useless signs? So it's like, please do not touch the sign. It's like, okay, what's that there for? Right? Signs are meant to point. Right? You can have a stop sign. What does that tell you to do? Right? In your car, it tells you to stop. You can have detour signs or, or, or plenty of signs that tell you information that's important. These signs, these miracles Jesus does are pointing all of our attention to see who Jesus is. That's what his miracles are for. They're not just to help people out. They're not just because he's loving, although they are because he's loving. They are really meant for us to see who Jesus really is. And the big thing that we see here is that he's the creator. But it says the disciples believed in him. You might say that's kind of weird because yesterday, or not yesterday, last week we talked about how Nathaniel already said he believed that Jesus was the son of God. Really what we think this means is the disciples continued to trust more and more in Jesus because Jesus proved himself more and more and more. So point number one is this. I want you to write this down. Strengthen your trust in Jesus. Strengthen your trust in Jesus. Some of you never believed in Jesus. Some of you don't know who Jesus is. We've been talking to you a lot in the last couple of weeks where Jesus has been introduced. Say that he's the creator, that he's God, that he's sovereign. It means he's in control of everything. That he put on flesh, he became a man and he came down to this earth to be our substitute, to live and to die for us. We've been talking about all that. The disciples had a partial view of that. Jesus does these signs to strengthen their faith to make it stronger, right? Some people have faith that's very small, right? They trust Jesus a little bit. There's other people who trust Jesus a lot, right? It's not that the person who trusts him a little bit doesn't trust him, but the reality is you need to trust him more and more. And maybe you're a, a newish Christian. You haven't been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you recently become a Christian, right? Here's what the Bible says that you should do with your trust. Let it grow. Let it become bigger. Let it become stronger. The more you learn about Jesus, the more you see what Jesus does, have it be stronger, Trust him more. Just like you trust people when they prove themselves true to you, you trust them more and more and more. Jesus will do that. The more we study him, the more we see him. The master of the feast, it's funny, he recognized it. Just think about it. Who noticed that this was a miracle? Did the master of the feast know that it was a miracle? No, he had no idea. Jesus didn't tell him. The servants didn't tell him. The only people that knew were Jesus, the disciples, Mary, and the servants. Doesn't even seem like the bride and groom even knew. Doesn't even seem like anybody at the feast really knew except for that select group of people. But the master of the feast tasted it and said, wow, this is amazing. I don't know where you got this, but it's amazing. And we don't even think that they told him what Jesus did, but he told us. And because we're reading John chapter two, we know where it came from. We know what Jesus did. I know we talked about this verse before, but I want you to write this verse down. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These two verses, they come at the end of the gospel and John told us why he wrote his book, which is interesting. Most books don't tell us why they're written, but this gospel of John actually tells us why it was written. It says this, this is John 20, verse 30. It said, now Jesus did many other signs or miracles in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that those of you who might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He says, he wrote 
this book so that you would see signs that Jesus did. And when you see signs that Jesus did, that you would believe in Jesus more. That's the point of this book. So when we see these signs, the first of the signs, we need to say, wow, this is written down for us so that we are supposed to believe in him. It's so important that we see that. We need to strengthen our trust. Now, there's something that John says here. It says that Jesus manifested his glory, right? Which you probably don't say very often. I manifested my glory today. What did you do? Oh, I, I went and I manifested my glory. Hey, what did you do? Oh, I, I, I went to school. <laughs> uh, no, I manifest my, what does that mean? Okay. To manifest your glory means to show your glory, right? And what's glory? That's an Old Testament idea that people have talked about the glory of God. In Isaiah chapter six, uh, the angels say about God that the whole earth is full of his glory. His amazing thing that he's made, the birds, the trees, everything that God has made, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's important, it's amazing, right? That, those are all synonyms for what glory is. So Jesus basically shows off who he is. That is a crazy idea for any person to do. Be crazy for you to show off your glory because the reality is you don't have much, Okay. No offense, right? You might, be, you might be good looking, you might be talented, you might be athletic, but you don't have that much glory, okay? I don't have that much glory. We can only show a tiny bit. Jesus has a ton of it because he's God. He has an infinite amount of glory and he's showing people who he really is. We saw that already in John chapter one. John 1, 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son of the father full of grace and truth. That's what Jesus showed. Showed that he is God that he has all the attributes of God, that he gives grace and he gives truth. There's actually a prophecy in the Old Testament that I think talks about this right here. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse five, it says that the whole world will know. It says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Saying there's gonna be a day when everybody sees the glory of God. Everybody's gonna see it, right? And I think that comes through Jesus and Jesus is just starting to like, peek back the curtain a little bit. He's just letting the disciples see a little bit and a little bit. And he's letting us see it because we get to read about this. We get to see more and more of his glory. Problem is, the Bible also says that Satan wants you not to see the glory of Jesus. He doesn't want you to see how amazing Jesus is. All right, I'll prove it to you. There's a verse that actually says it exactly like that. It's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Here's what 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says. It says, in their case, the God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Saying, Satan, every time we have a small group, every time we have a sermon, right, here's what Satan wants to do to you afterwards. He wants to make you forget everything you just heard. He wants to get you to forget everything you just heard about Jesus and to never think about it until you come back to church next time and then for you to think about it for 15 minutes and then to just forget about it again, right? That's what Satan wants to do with you, right? And for some of you, he's very successful at that. Right? If, you're not a, if you're not a real Christian, Satan is right now blinding your mind. Right? If you want to think about Christ, Satan wants to say, no, I don't want you to think about Christ. I don't want you to see how good Jesus is. I don't want you to see his miracles. I don't want you to believe in him. Satan wants to blind our minds. But for those who are God's people, God's going to open your eyes. God's going to let you see it the more you see of Jesus. Actually, just a few verses before in 2 Corinthians 3.18. So we just looked at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Now, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, so just a few verses before, it says this, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For all this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. All right, so here's the thing. The idea in the gospel of John is the disciples saw a little peak of the glory of Jesus in his miracle, right? 
the reality is because you've just read the story today and because you've heard it, you have seen that same peak. You've gotten that same little look at Jesus, that same little peak of glory. And here's the thing. This text says that God wants to use that. And every time you see more of who Jesus is, he wants to change you to be more like him. It's like he's got this glory. And every time you see this glory, he gives this illustration of Moses, right? Who saw the glory of God. And what happened after he saw the glory of God? His face was lit up. He looked like a, I don't know, a person with bad makeup on, right? His face was all like lit up, right? The girls got that one, right? When people put on too much makeup and it's all like really white, and it's like your face is not white, but you're, you know, you got a lot of makeup on, right? What happened after Moses saw God was his face was all lit up because he saw the glory of the Lord. It stayed on him. That's what the Bible says about us seeing more glory of Jesus in the Bible, that that should stay on you. And that should make you more like Jesus. That the more you see him, the more you understand him, the more you're going to be changed like him. So that's what we can take away from this miracle. But what do we learn about Jesus through this miracle? Okay. I said one big thing that we learned that Jesus is the creator. And I want you to write that down for point number two. I want you to worship Jesus as the powerful creator. Worship Jesus as the powerful creator. Don't just think of him as the powerful creator. Plenty of people say, I believe Jesus is the creator. I want you to do more than that. I want you to worship Jesus as the powerful creator. I mentioned this before, but if you're going to turn water into wine, um, instantly, that's a miracle, right? But not instantly, that's not a miracle. Are you you tracking with that, right? You could do it. It would take time. It would take grapes. It would take a lot of things. Just like if I was going to say, I want you to take your Kirkland water bottle right now and turn it into Coke in an instant. Do it. You say, well, I can't do that because I don't have the materials I need for that. Exactly. And that's why I think Jesus did this, to show that he does not need the materials. He doesn't need, you know, the the carbon dioxide. He doesn't need the sugar. He doesn't need the the, the corn syrup. He doesn't need whatever's in Coke, you know, all the stuff that is probably not good for you, right? He doesn't need all that. He can just do it by just thinking it. He didn't touch it. Notice that he doesn't even put in the water, right? Because if it was a magic trick, right, you'd have like, you would do it right? And if it was a magic trick, you get everybody around and say, everybody, everybody, check this out. I'm going to do a magic trick. Everybody, check it out. I'm going to put this water. You see this water? Ooh, it's water, right? Now it's going to be wine. Ready? Boom. Right? Wine, right? That's not how Jesus did it. In fact, it was very much the opposite. He just told the servants, like, hey, can you just, uh, yeah, put some water in it. Okay, now take it out. Boom. Instantly changed. Molecules that were not there, right? We think that that's amazing. We think that's a miracle. Just recognize something. We already read this in the Gospel of John. John 1, 3. What does it say? John 1, 3. If you're in John 2, just look at it. John 1, 3. It says, all things were made through him. All things. So just this water that was turned to wine? No. All things. I mean, look around. What exists, right? The table exists, right? The plastic, right? Your water bottle, your friend, your hat, right? I'm wearing a hat, so you don't have a hat on. Uh, Some of you do, right? Your arm, your leg. I mean, just you exist, right? The ground exists, sky exists, atmosphere, water. I mean, it all exists, but how did it come about? How did it come about? This says it was all made through him. So just like the water was turned to wine, right, through Jesus, it says everything that's ever been made, anything that's ever existed was made through Jesus. Bible actually goes further than that. It says in that next verse, John 1, 4, if you're looking at it, John 1, 3 says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made, That was made, right? Just to be super clear. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So he's talking about physical life here, right? But then he goes on to talk about something that's even more than physical life. 
He's like, even think about it. Right? Jesus in himself, he has life, right? You have life, but your life was given to you, right? You didn't possess it beforehand, right? Your parents gave you life, right? God gave you life, right? But you didn't have it in yourself because you can have it taken away from you, right? When you die, your, your life is taken from you. So you didn't have it to begin with and you're not gonna have it in, in the end. And so it's like, Jesus always has life. He just, he gets to decide who has life and who doesn't have life, right? That's, that's kind of weird, right? Think about that. He literally says, I have, the father has given to me the right to say who lives and who doesn't. <laughs> that's what John 5 says. He says that in John 5. But think about it like this. Colossians 1 says something even further. It doesn't just say that Jesus created everything. It says that he's doing something right now with it. It says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the water, the wine, you, everything that's ever existed made through Jesus and for him. It belongs to him. It goes further. He is before all things. So he existed before anything existed. And in him, all things hold together. That's even weirder, okay? All things hold together. Have you ever studied atoms? Right? You know what atoms are, right? In science class, right? It's the little thing, a bunch of little things that spin around it, right? You know that? Molecules, right? planets, anything that you can think of. Jesus holds it together right now. He's the one. So if he stops, Think this one through. If Jesus stops holding it together, holding it together takes effort, right? That's something that's being done. That's an active thing, not a passive thing. He holds everything together. What happens when he lets it go, right? Nothing exists anymore, right? That's crazy. You ever thought about that? Jesus literally holds every breath that you've ever taken. Jesus is giving you that breath. Every time your, your heart is ever beaten, God, Jesus did that. Right? Everything that happens, Jesus does. That's why this thing we look at, it's like, whoa, it's a miracle. Right? Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a God thing. It's just what Jesus does all the time. Right? It's just he did it in an instant and he did it differently. That's why it's amazing to us because we think that, oh, we're like, well, I stay alive by eating healthy and by you know, taking care of myself. That's, that's ridiculous. No, Jesus keeps you alive. The second Jesus wants you not to be alive, you're not gonna be alive. Right? So he holds all things together right now. That's incredible. Right? And you gotta, you gotta wrestle with that big idea. That's a huge idea. That's kind of a truth bomb that just dropped on you. That's a huge idea. Jesus holds everything together, which is why in, in John 11, he said something big. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He went to a funeral. He told the sister of the person who had just died, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I make alive because I have life in myself. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. You believe in Jesus, you trust in him, you'll die. No arguing with that. We're all gonna die but you're gonna live forever because Jesus gives that life. It's only possible through him. And I said that he gives life, right? He, everything that ex exists right now, Jesus made. Everything. Every piece of hair, every skin cell, everything made by Jesus and for Jesus. He doesn't just talk about that kind of life. He goes further. And in John, we're gonna see a lot of times he's talking about something and he's also talking about something else at the same time. So when the Bible says that Jesus gives us life, right? What is that talking about? Well, he gives us life like he helped you, right? he more than helped you. He's the reason you exist. He's the reason you were born. Right? He's the reason you've been able to be healthy up to this point, right? He, he helps you exist all the time. And he gives life, a different kind of life, life 2.0. In the gospel of John, he calls it eternal life, right? Eternal life, not just a eternal physical life, which is usually what we think of. We think of, oh, eternal life means we're gonna live, you know, to infinity and beyond like Buzz Lightyear, right? Um, that's what we think of. Oh yeah, for living forever, right? He's gonna do that, but that's only part of it, right? 
He gives eternal life in a physical sense, but he also gives eternal life in a spiritual sense. He makes us alive spiritually forever, right? Guess who does that? Is it you? Is it me? Is it your parents? No, it's Jesus. That's it, right? That's what he's trying to show us through this. I mean, think about it. This is a huge thing Jesus is saying. Because we look at this, we say, wow, Jesus can create anything. Well, even more than that, Jesus gives us eternal life, not just physical life, but also eternal life. He says later on in the book in John 17, he talks to God in a prayer and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you've given him authority over everybody, all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's a big statement that Jesus gives life. And more than that, that Jesus gives life that only can come from God. You got to worship Jesus for that. I know we haven't really talked about much application there, but I want you to think about that and think hard about that, that Jesus is the reason you exist. Jesus made you. Jesus holds your life up. Every breath you take, it's because Jesus gives you that breath. Every time your heart beats, it's because Jesus made your heart beat, right? Everything that exists, it's because of Jesus. That's amazing. Think about that. Ponder that. And don't just say, okay, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to forget about it. No, worship him for that. Thank him for that. Tell him how awesome he is. Talk to him. Pray to him. Sing to him. Jesus gives eternal life physically and spiritually to those who ask and trust him. I think that's the first big thing. But also, point number three, I want you to write this down. As we learn about this, we see how Jesus just cares for people. This miracle of turning water into wine is something amazing, supernatural, and it's caring. So write this down for point number three. I want you to cherish the deep care of Jesus. Cherish the deep care of Jesus. Jesus really cares for people. I want you to think about this wedding. Go back in your mind to this wedding. Imagine it's on a hillside. It's an outdoor wedding, right? There's a lot of things on the slope of the hill and it's all rough terrain and they're eating and they're drinking and having a great time and they're having an awesome wedding. The, the wine runs out, right? Who's at this wedding? How many people are at this wedding? Doesn't say. All we know is that it's Jesus's six disciples so far. It's Mary, it's the servants, it's the bride and groom and whoever else they invited, okay? We don't know how many people are at this wedding. But what we do know is they ran out of wine and something bad happened. They didn't have enough of what they needed. Were there any kings there? Were there any nobles? Any important people? Anyone special? Probably not, right? This is a very common thing. And we know that because um, if you run out of wine at the beginning of the festival, you're probably pretty poor, okay? These festivals actually probably lasted about seven days. So seven days of food is a lot of food. They run out of wine on the first day, like the first, we don't even, it doesn't even say how many days, but it seems like, wow, they ran out of wine really fast. These people were, must have been poor. They weren't important. They weren't special, right? But Jesus cared for them. That's amazing. Think about that. Jesus cares for people, even if they're not big, talented, important, special, right? Even not, not over the top impressive, Jesus cares for them, cared for these people. He comes, he celebrates the marriage of two people, right? How many people can say, Jesus went to my wedding, I don't know, at least these two people, but I don't know who else. Jesus celebrated them. After everything we just talked about, about Jesus being the powerful creator, and then everything we just talked about, about him hanging out with these people who were not that important, does that blow your mind a little bit? That Jesus, the one who's holding everything together, he's there to celebrate with this couple? I mean, that's really amazing. If Jesus showed up to your birthday party just because he loved you and just wanted to talk to you while he's holding the whole universe up by his power and his will, but he just cares about you individually, right? Not just the big group of you, but you. He cares about you individually. 
And that should blow your mind. How good is Jesus to care about these people individually? There's a lot of things that people say about this, this miracle, water to wine. One of the things is um, people look at this and say, wow, Jesus makes old things into new things. He creates better wine you know, than, than the other wine, right? Never had wine, never will have wine. I don't know what it tastes like, but I know how good things taste and bad things taste, like coffee, okay? I know good coffee, I know bad coffee, okay? Um, there's some really bad coffee, and no offense, right? The stuff that's in the, in the pot, right? Uh, the pot of coffee at church, right? It's just not very good coffee. Sometimes it tastes a little moldy, right? Sometimes it tastes a little gross, right? It's not good coffee. I like good coffee, right? I go to the coffee bar. I walk all the way from my office, right? It's such a long journey to have my coffee, I know. Um, first world problems, right? Um, but I walk over, I make good coffee, right? And then I make a, a pour over sometimes. And sometimes I have the cold brew. I like good coffee, right? Jesus did not make bad coffee, okay? He didn't make this thing to be enjoyed that was like cake. It was like an, a delicacy. He didn't make it just subpar. He didn't make it bad. He didn't give a little bit. He made it great and he gave it a lot, right? That shows how gracious Jesus is. He makes all things new. One day in Jesus's perfect world that we're gonna live in, everybody who, who's right with Jesus, everyone who trusts in him, Revelation 21 says that Jesus is gonna make all things new. It says this, verse four, this is Revelation 21, four. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall be neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All that old stuff from that old world that we're living in right now that stinks, everything that's hard, everything that feels that we have lack, guess what? In Jesus's perfect new world, it's gonna be great and it's gonna be full and it's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be everlasting. Jesus cares about people individually. That's why the book of Luke says he came to seek and save the lost. That's Luke 19, 10. He came to seek and save the lost. That's a very individual caring act that Jesus had, right? And we've talked about how Jesus cared for these people, but think about how Jesus cared for you, right? He doesn't just care for this couple in Cana. He doesn't just care for his 12 disciples, his six disciples at this point. He doesn't just care about them. He also cares about you individually, right? Because he did something for you that's so much better than turning water into wine and giving you a fun afternoon. He went to the cross. His hour would come where he would live this perfect life and then die on the cross for you. Book of Hebrews 